Welcome to the Confident Retirement Podcast. Is doing the most important things alone a good idea? How comfy are you with your choices when it comes to life's biggest decisions? What is real peace of mind with financial confidence and how can you get it? Chris Fleming and Mark Peachy are the founders of LPF Advisors in Sarasota, Florida. On the show, they bring together the best and brightest minds to share with you how to have a more confident financial picture. They empower listeners with simple, common sense and financial wisdom. And now, here are your hosts from LPF Advisors. Hey, I want to welcome everybody to the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors. I'm your host here as always, Chris Flaming, And I have the honor of hosting Jeffrey Katz to the podcast today. His law practice, based in Maryland, focuses on estates, trusts, and guardianship issues for their clients with an emphasis on good results and efficient lawyering work. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Let's jump in. Um, Let's have some fun. So I'm sure you have a very interesting history. Um, Maybe take me through uh, your backstory on what led you to where you are today. Sure, absolutely. So I um, I went to law school in Chicago and uh, then went went down to University of Miami, got my LLM in taxation, and I started up working for a small accounting firm by the name of KPMG. And actually, it wasn't wasn't quite that small, but it was one of the (laughs) largest firms at the time. Yeah. I was doing M&A work, so I was doing some pretty large mergers. We worked on Marriott, a big hardware chain called Heckinger's, and the last one, uh, MCI. MCI didn't go that well. It was actually turned into the largest accounting fraud in the history of public accounting. And so they fired the partner I was working for, and they dissolved and disbanded our, our practice group and sort of sent everyone to the four proverbial corners of the tax owner. So that is my roommate. So he had worked at um, a place called Houston Natural Gas, and shortly after getting there, they changed the name to Enron, and his prior employer had been Arthur Anderson. So he had a really, really hard time. But I, I called this guy up and I was like, hey, you know, like, like, like I mean, my, I guess my, my future trajectory in public county has come to a, an abrupt halt. And I know you had a sort of similar circumstance. He said, you know, you really should just kind of go back to, you know, to straight law practice, stay away from this public county thing. And which to me was great because I, I liked the law and, and I liked the finance. And, and for me, I was like having an answer that put together for folks and for, for me, tax in the state was, was really the, the area that I gravitated most towards because there was always an answer. Like we always came up with, was it tax, was it not tax? Well, was it included as an item of income? Not, I became one of these like, like, like tax junkies. And so I really, you know, enjoyed and, and you know, helped helping people get to, you know, a better outcome for their families and removing some of those frictional costs, expenses <clears throat> associated with dealing with, you know, passing wealth or, or growing that wealth. To me, it really, you know, got me excited and still gets me excited today. So, you know, I'm kind of like this tax estate wonk, I guess, and, and I still really love what I do every day and I'm excited. Yeah, that had to be some kind of an experience, I'm sure. Like they had to find some kind of scapegoat or like, a, you know, to someone we had blamed yeah. on somebody, not you personally, but I just. No, oh, I mean, I, I, it, was, it was clearly like the, the firm and it wasn't our firm, the accounting firm. It yeah. was the underlying client was doing terrible things. We got Sarbanes actually when they came back in and they, they changed you know, all the rules. And so it was like, you know, they, they were making up income. That, you know, so they could drive their stock price higher, right. and they were paying taxes on things. They were, they were paying taxes on all this fictitious income. And after you know, it was discovered, they went back and amended their tax returns, got you know millions, if not billions, of dollars back. So it's just like people are like, like what? <laughs> like, why right. I mean, it's yeah. insane. So yeah, yeah, that's gonna throw up a red flag. Yeah, like oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, no one's over-reporting their income. People are trying to right. under-report. You, know, you guys are, are claiming income you didn't actually make. <laughs> yeah. 
doesn't make any sense, right? You know, and, yeah. and auditors aren't looking for that. And, and frankly, you know, tax practitioners, are, we just assume that you're, you're telling us about, about the income. You're not, you're not increasing the income for some unknown reason. So, yeah, that's Tons. wild. Actually, that's wild. Thanks for bringing that up. That's a good story. So maybe is there something that you know now uh, with where you are today that you wish you knew when you started out in your law practice? Maybe you could go back in time and give the younger you some advice. Um, what do you think that might be? So, you know, like, like when I started out, I literally, I went to work for a small firm when I, when I left KPMG and there was like two attorneys and they were doing, you know, trust and estate work. I, I learned it there. When I left, I had the, the top three corporate clients, actually the only three corporate clients came with me. Hmm. And I, the biggest challenge I had at that point was keeping their files from falling over because I literally had three files. So I went and I bought a bookend, which kept these, these files from like toppling. And, and so within a couple of weeks, I was you know adding more and more and more files. And within a month or two, I had somehow been appointed to run a construction company in receivership by the local circuit court. And so at 29, I'm running a 35 man construction firm, knowing nothing about construction or real estate or, or you know anything that they're doing. And I'm going on hard hat tours. And so the thing is like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and I didn't know that I was in over my head. Like I just had no idea, but I was like, you know what? I have a law degree. I'm ambitious. I can handle this. And we got through, we got the company through, we filed all the tax returns. We, you know, got people paid. We completed other projects. And I think there was a lot of tenacity along grit. And I don't know that you could teach people that. I think if anything, I, I probably spent too much money on marketing when I started. I had not enough time and money, you know, developing relationships. I regret mm. buying like expensive computer equipment. The thing that I still regret is I bought a $27,000 phone system at one point. I was told I needed this, this ridiculously expensive phone system so we could track our time. And I immediately had an out-of-date, two months later, I immediately had an out-of-date phone system. And I kept, yeah. I, mean, I needed more upgrades and things. And then they tried some computer servers. And it was just, so I found that, you know, technology, technology, just a huge hole in the ocean. You just threw money into continuously. And so when they started moving away from owning equipment to renting, you know, using like SaaS based systems, yep. being able to operationalize without actually owning it and having, you know, this, that was a much better path for me. And even for someone who was starting out now, like I think the barriers to entry are a lot lower because you're not, you don't have these upfront capital costs. You want to buy expensive computer systems right. and phone systems and, you know, these AIs. And so I think if I was starting today, I would probably be a lot further ahead if I were to restart now than where I was then. But you know, I mean, it's been a pretty good run for the last 22 years. We're up to like, I think we have like 16 employees and, you know, I mean, we've got more work than we can handle, which is a good thing and a bad thing. So, yeah, well, and you have the experiences, so, yeah. and you have the, and you have the good stories. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, we, that's a great <laughs> so, so then I, I guess I'm curious, how did you come to determine the focus of your, the core focus of your firm services? Was it because the clients that you were getting fell into those categories or was it because of passion you had around them? Or did it just evolve organically that way? How did how did that happen? So we got set up with the local referral service, and they were referring us a variety of you know all kinds of things, and some stuff I liked, some stuff I didn't like. I was in court a lot. Uh, I hated going to court. I, you know, would just sit in the courthouse for hours waiting to have the cases called, and yeah. to me, it was just a complete waste of time. Um, really inefficient, and then. Like you couldn't bring your phone in, and like they're like, nope, you got to just got to sit here, and I just want to bring the newspaper. And I mean, I did talk to a lot of attorneys, and I talked to a lot of litigators, and, and the sense was that there was a need for folks who understood, you know, the finance side of it, the tax side of it, to come and help the litigation people. And so, really, you know, I think the focus grew as a result of the litigators that I was talking and interacting and engaging with, who said, hey, there's just not enough folks who do this, and, and like most 
tax attorneys aren't really that interesting. Like they're not good in front of people or they're, they're just not, you know, engaged or, you know, the accounting, like there's sort of like a perception of accounts as being boring mm. and folks that you kind of go to and, and not necessarily fund people or, or super engaged. And so like, you know, they're sort of necessary evils where, you know, you want to keep them around when you need them, but get rid of them when you don't. So I, I think that was sort of how that the practice grew. And, and over the years, you know, we've gotten more and more of a reputation for getting these done. And then we began developing systems and processes to really allow us to scale that type of work. And so now, you know, we do over 500 estate plans a year, which is an inordinate amount of, of estate work for a firm of our size with basically no marketing. Like, like we're not doing seminars, we're not running advertisements, we're just, it's word of mouth and, and referrals that are coming in. And so, you know, like, I think that that really speaks to sort of our depth of knowledge, our perception, our ability to get the work done. But, you know, because we do so many of them, you know, we've got these good systems and processes in place and people know it took to refer to us. And so, you know, we'll have clients who call them, like, and, and for the clients, the first time they've done, done an estate plan, they ask us all these questions. and. You know, we're like, well, we do 500 of these a year. I mean, I got 10,000 of them that we've done over the last 20 years. You know, I think we know what we're doing. But, you know, in law, we don't say we ever really, uh, you know, achieve per- perfection. We just keep practicing. You know? Yeah, right. That's what they call practicing law. So <laughs> that brings up a good point then is, do you think there's some general misconceptions that clients have about what you do or what you can do for them? So, so that's a great question. So the thing is, like a lot of people come and they say, "Hey, I just want to do a will." Like, like you know, I need. I, I'm, a, I'm a simple guy, and I just need to do a simple estate plan. And, and the simple guy with the simple estate plan has been married twice, and has a family business, and has an insurance policy, and has right. you know seven to ten million dollars. But their their plan is pretty simple. They just want to give all the money to their family over the next thirty years and endow a small foundation. And you know, all of a sudden, you're like, you know, that's not so simple. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, in your mind, what would complicate things? <laughs> Um, but even folks who come in with, you know, a million dollars in assets and say, hey, you know, I have a pretty straightforward plan. The assets are not super complicated. I've got some life insurance. I've got a retirement account. I've got a home. I want to give it to my spouse and then my kids. You know, like we can do those plans. And the question then is, you know, how are we structuring those plans? What are the optics in terms of who's going to serve, how they're going to serve, you know, who's getting the distributions? And, and so mm-hmm. if we're looking at things like frictional costs, uh, expenses, administration, taxes and, and folks I think really have this misconception that you know having a will is super easy and the probate process is relatively straightforward. It, it can be, but in many cases it's a long drawn out process. In Maryland where we're based, um, statutory expenses administration start at nine percent on the drop down to three point six percent on anything that next to twenty thousand dollars. So for someone coming in with a million dollars worth of assets, you're looking at a statutory fee of about forty thousand bucks. Right. And that's all. I think that's a lot of money, you know, mm-hmm. for, you know, a, a process that shouldn't take that long or, or be that complicated. And it's a process that, that 99 percent of people can avoid just by having some careful planning up front and thinking, hey, you know, tactically, how do we go ahead and, and give access to these funds and transfer them in a way that benefits my, my family, doesn't have to you know, go through the court system, doesn't give creditors first dibs of the money and allows my you know, kids and, and you know, spouse to stay in the home. You know, unmolested. You know, not being forced out, not being forced to sell the property, not having to relocate to some other jurisdiction uh, yeah. as as possible. And, and most of our clients, you know, we, we ask people, hey, do you, you know, if if you're old and sick, do you want to stay at home or do you want to go to the nursing home? And, and nobody wants to go to the nursing home. Everyone wants to stay at home. We say, hey, you know, do you want the government coming in and telling you what to do with your money and how you get distributions? And they say, no, we don't. And then I ask, well, well, you know, when you went to get your driver's license, dude, what kind of experience was that for you? And everyone says, oh, it was horrible. I had to sit in the, the DMV for three hours and, you know, I had to wait and right. the people there smelled bad and, you know, it was, it was a big mess. And, and then I'm like, okay, well, 
it's the same way with, with you know, state administration. It's, it's a very long, drawn-out process. It's not comfortable. You know, you've had a family member who's passed. Emotionally, you know, it's straining. For the survivor, then you've got all these administrative processes that have been put on top. You've got to do an inventory and an accounting, and you have to keep telling the court what's going on. And if they don't like your answers, then you have to go tell the judge, and it's, you know, it's very stressful. And you know, why would you want to put your, your family members through that after you've passed? And, and most of our clients say, well, I wouldn't. I'm like, okay. But, like, but, but I just have a simple plan. And I said, well, the simple plan, the way to simplify that is to, to think about it tactically. You know, do we get assets to people with beneficiary designations? Because that's pretty simple. Yeah. Do we get it to them by making them payable on death? Right? That's pretty simple. Do we use a revocable trust? Because we want to control who gets the money when they get it. Right? That makes a lot more sense. It's a little more complicated, but ultimately it gets you to the goal and objective you're looking to get to. Mm-hmm. And hasn't COVID uh, elongated or added even more time and complexity onto the probate process? And I know that's been true in Florida. Has that been true where you are? I think we saw, so when COVID hit, we definitely saw a spike in deaths. And so what happened in many instances, so one, the local morgues here didn't have enough room for all the people who were passing away. Mm-hmm. And they actually wound up turning a couple of local ice rinks into mortuaries where they were just mm-hmm. holding people yeah. until they figure out what to do with them. The estate planning, or, or I should say the estate administration offices, also did not have the capacity to handle the influx of, of deaths coming in. And so there was a significant backlog in getting hearings and getting dates. And so while you had a, a statutory timeline for that process, what could have or would have been a six month or 12 month became a 12 to 18 month. So mm-hmm. we definitely saw an extended period of time on that. You know, as we kind of got through the pandemic, I think that sort of subsided. I think there was an initial wave of deaths. And then a lot of the folks we saw passing, you know, were, were really old or really sick and they didn't have a lot in the way of assets. So mm-hmm. they were small estates, they weren't necessarily large estates. But I think for us, where we are up here in Maryland, We've got the National Institute of Health. We've got the National Institute of Standard Technology. We had, you know, all the doctors and the physicians who were giving this. And the county we were in basically shut down. Like, they, they shut down all the businesses. Yeah. And they thought, well, unless you're an essential business, you got to work from home. And, right. and so, you know, we've got people who are freaked out, who can't go in to see their lawyers, who can't go see the, I mean, who can't go grocery shopping. I mean, they're yeah. just, I mean it, it was completely wrong. So what happened was we actually tripled. Our state planning practice tripled. During COVID, we went from like 200 to 600 and then it kind of dropped back down. But mm-hmm. we moved all of our consults onto Zoom because we couldn't meet with people in person. Correct. And so, you know, for years, for the 18, 19 years prior to this, you know, all of our meetings were in person and people had to schedule. And once we went to Zoom, we kind of unlocked a lot of bandwidth for folks where, you know, they could get us the information in advance. We could do the meetings. They didn't have to, to drive down to our office, spend a half an hour driving, a half mm-hmm. an hour back, pay to park. And so I, I think in some respects, you know, the pandemic moved us to, to a place where people were comfortable doing video conferencing um, with the attorneys, and we were able to, to actually get more people, you know, into that process because it was less difficult to enter them in. At the same time, you know, you had people who were, who were freaked out, and they were like, I'm going to die, I can't do it. And then the, the other challenge we had was getting documents executed because you couldn't do in-person executions. And so right. up here in Maryland, they actually changed the law to allow remote executions, and they allowed online notarization. And so we started doing those. Some of the banks came back and they weren't accepting them. And, and so there was, there was some challenges. And we wound up, I think in most cases, actually re-executing everybody who had done a remote in-person. Because so, we, don't, we don't want to figure out what the law is going to be in 50 years or yeah. have folks back in and arguing, hey, this was not a proper execution or this was effective for whatever reason. Yeah, I think that adoption of the virtual meeting thing, that was definitely true in our business as well, where people were skeptical before. And then one of the things that happened with COVID is, is they became more accepting and 
now it is maybe even a first choice um, in a lot of cases. We are routinely asked if we're okay doing an online meeting. Yeah. Because people, they really don't want to come in if they don't have to. And and for us, it's great. It gives us more scale and more depth. You know, I think it's been a great equalizer for clients in terms of getting on and and being able to to see, you know, us. And we've got these virtual backdrops. It's funny, when I was at KPMG, they spent tens of millions of dollars building out conference rooms in each of their locations. And each of these conference rooms looked like Bennigan's. So they had the big brass pots and, and plants and things and the same terrible wallpaper and the same furniture. And they wanted to set up so that the whole firm, anyone in the entire firm could come in and you would you all look like you were in the same exact room because you had the same fixtures and furnishings. So we got these virtual backgrounds. We're actually sitting on today. It's got these little circles that, that flip around. They use them in church services. I got it for two bucks on Etsy. All of our staff use this. And so when we're together, we all look like we're sitting in like this virtual, you know, Brady Bunch like grid, but it's very consistent. And we, we want to get the same effect that KPMG spent tens of millions of dollars for two bucks. Yeah. And the clients really like it. I mean, okay, it's very cool, you know, right. focus folks on what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, there's a little bit of a halo around my head. So it gives me this sort of angelic. It might, there we might, go. We'll tell you otherwise, but, yeah. but, it, but it gives me this we sort need, of angelic. We need something there. We need yeah. something. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, maybe I, now every situation is different, but what do you kind of view as being the core essentials for an estate plan? Now, I, well, we won't speak in terms of the complexities and stuff like that, but what do you recommend that, you know, every client have for somebody um, that maybe doesn't know a lot about that, that's never done any estate planning? What do you generally suggest? So the starting point for everybody is to really just take an inventory of what you have and sit down and make a list of the assets and say, hey, you know, I've got bank accounts, brokerage accounts, retirement accounts, life insurance policies. And think not only about the, the policies you have now, but you know, maybe you switch jobs at some point. Maybe you have an old 401k at a prior employer you've never updated. Take a look at those assets and you know, see, you know, do you really need four 401ks? Does it make sense to roll them into one 401k? Should we have our current investment advisor do that? And just try to just identify what are those assets? Mm-hmm. How are they held? How are they titled? Are they tenant by the entirety? If you own with your spouse, are they joint tenants? If you own it with someone else? Is there a beneficiary designation? And what's the flow of funds you have set up right now? Because that's not always what people want. So I can't tell times we see life insurance policies where folks have named a person who's already deceased yeah. as the beneficiary, or they've named their ex-spouse, mm-hmm. right? or they've named their parents, right? Mm-hmm. Who, are, who are in a nursing home, getting medical assistance, long-term care, and they don't understand that when they leave their, their parents, you know, t- you know, $2 million, they're going to disqualify them from receiving that. And they're going to have to privately pay and spend through that money before the benefit. And so that's all part of sort of taking that inventory up front. You know, what are the assets? How are they titled? Who are the named beneficiaries? Once you have an understanding of that, then sitting down to to try to address, well, who's going to get these things? Oh, one of the other things that people often overlook, group term life policies. So if you work for a big company, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these companies will pay out, you know, three times or four times salary. It's a base benefit. You know, a lot of the the folks who are working there don't even pay for it. It just comes. Sometimes they give them the option to buy an additional policy. Um, these are great for folks who are, are not insurable uh, on their own because they come mm-hmm. under the group term. So there's often not any type of you know medical examination that's required. And folks often forget about these when they're they're going through this process. And so you know, including that in there. And just again, just taking a total you know view of what are, what are these assets, how much they worth, right? Who are the name beneficiaries? And from there, you can kind of back into what what the planning looks like. And so you know we don't, we don't do financial planning here. We don't say well you should buy this or sell that, but we do say well you know here are the assets. Here's your growth rate. You get a six percent or seven percent growth rate. You know in eight years what, what's the is it the rule of fifty six that you double your money every? Is it seven? It's, it's the rule of seventy two. Rule of seventy two. Ah, okay. Yeah. Rule of 72. And how long does it, does it take to double your money at seven percent? How many years is that? Ten years. 
Ten, okay, so ten years. So, so someone who's at a three million dollar state today will have a six million dollar state in ten years, right? Mm-hmm. And in twenty years, will have a a twelve million dollar state. And the, you know, the question then is, well, what are the exemptions, the state tax exemptions, or the federal tax exemption where you're located, and are those going to grow at the same rate? And so, you know, while we're not giving financial advice, we're trying to give tactical advice as far as the planning. It's like, well, you may have a tax issue today, you may have a tax issue tomorrow. You know, can we think about that? You know, in terms of where we're going with this. How do we develop those assets the way they're being held? Not not, so, not necessarily having the attorney tell you what to buy or sell, but how to hold those so that we you can grow the asset outside of the estate. We have clients who come in who have you know startup businesses. You know the values are very low; they're, they're pre-money, and then they'll say, "Well, you know, can I do what um, the, the PayPal guy did?" And I say, "Well, what would the PayPal guy do?" Oh, well, the PayPal guy went in and bought you know five million shares of PayPal stock in his Roth IRA at one one hundredth of a penny and now has like $50 billion sitting in his Roth IRA that he's never going to pay income taxes on. Like, can we do that? I'm like, like well, my answer is, well, do, do you own PayPal stock? They said no, but, you know. Right. Um, but, but, you know, like, like, these are the types of things that, you know, like, you know, if, if, I always say, like, if you had the almanac for Back to the Future, like, would you, yeah. be, you know, like, like what, what lines would, would you be picking for, for these things and how would you yeah. go? Um, we actually we had one client. He had worked for a company called Sienna, which is a big micro electronics company. He was there sort of the heyday, the beginning. And so every year, he gave his granddaughter the annual exclusion of ten thousand dollars per year. He didn't do it to anyone other family because he had this, this one granddaughter. Over five years, he gave her fifty thousand dollars of Sienna stock, and Sienna, Sienna blew up. I mean, that the company was just huge. We got acquired by I think JDS Uniphase, and now the fifty thousand dollars of stock that he gave her is worth eight million dollars, right? And so, so that, that was a huge success in terms of his ability to transfer wealth, but it was also really unfair to his other family members because he, he hasn't given the same types of, of contributions. Right. And so, you know, because of the vagary of the market in terms of what happened, you got a disproportionate distribution or, or allocation, which really wasn't anyone's goal or objective. And so yeah. you know, she, she literally went up holding a lottery ticket and, and her, her number came up. But you know, if you look at that from a familial perspective, that's not a great outcome. I mean, you yeah. have a lot of folks in that family who are unhappy with right. you know, the fact they got less and she got more. And so you know, there's not a lot of equity in terms of that distribution. Yeah, and you and that you bring up a good point there. So I, I'm sure when you work with clients, a lot of times it can be emotional because families are involved in relationships. So how, how do you find it best to kind of manage client expectations and emotions when you're guiding them through this process? Because I'm sure some of those conversations can not get heated, but just there's emotions involved. I mean, I, so one of these is, is we don't use the word death or die, or, you know, we talk about, you know, how you want to pass the, the ass to grow your legacy, or who's part of that, that planning process, and, you know, what are the goals and objectives. Clients generally come to us with, with a sense or conception in terms of what they want to do and how okay. they want to do it. And so it's not that hard. I mean, I think the hardest conversations are where, you know, you know, married couples disagree in terms of who's getting it or, or, or the ages they're getting it at. Mm-hmm. We really do try to encourage folks to to not pay out lump sums, you know, large amounts of money, millions of dollars to 18-year-olds. I think, think that mm-hmm. is probably our, our greatest right. challenge. It's like, hey, you know, we can set up a trust, a couple thousand bucks. Let's dole it out over time. Let's have them work with the financial advisor, right? Let's, let's just kind of gen- gently segue them into the management of this money because it took mm-hmm. you a lifetime to earn this. And we don't want to see them blow it in six months or eight months. Years ago, we had a family. They owned the Weather Channel. They, they were, you know, significant holder of the Weather Channel. They sold the Weather Channel to a group of interns named GE Universal to four point, for four point five billion dollars, and the family got one hundred sixty million dollars for that transaction. Well, Mom and Pa were in their sixties when they received the funds. They didn't know what to do with the money, 
and they went on a bender in terms of spending spree. And they spent through $65 million in nine months buying God. It was like Brewster. I'm sure it's the movie Brewster's Millions. Brewster has to spend yeah. cash. Great movie. Yeah. Great movie to get an even bigger pile of cash. Well, they thought they were producer, but there was no secondary pile of cash. Right. And so they were giving money away and they were buying all kinds of stuff. They were gambling, they were paying for, for private planes. The, the husband was buying, you know, the barman and the, the guy at the boatyard, houses, I mean, doing all kinds of, nobody told them about the federal gift tax. Like they just, right. so, so six months into it, like, oh, you gave away six million. You owe an additional 42 million in, in federal, you know, gift taxes as a result of your, your large ass. And they're like, whoa, you know, easy come, easy go. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of an extreme circumstance, but you know, folks who get large amounts of money, you, you see these TV shows about the proverbial lottery winners who wind up in bankruptcy because they spend their money on stuff. It's crazy. Um, the story that the guy who worked for used to tell me was about the Maharajas in India. And he said, if you ever went to bankrupt the Maharaja, the way to do that was to give them a glorious gift. Then the gift was a, a white elephant. Mm-hmm. And so white elephants are, are magnificent and they're they're you know very princely and they're you know everyone wants to see the white elephant, but white elephants eat a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, the bigger the elephant is, the more it consumes. And so if you ever wanted to drive a kingdom into bankruptcy, you would present that kingdom with three or four of these giant white elephants. The, 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 the Maharaja would then show it off to everybody. They couldn't get rid of them because yeah. they you know, look poor upon them. And the children like to see the elephants. And the elephants would just eat and eat and eat and eat. And so you see folks who have built these empires and, and they have to feed the beast with these white elephants. And so, you know, it, it's interesting from the estate planning perspective, you know, where people you know build up this lifestyle, they want to maintain the lifestyle, and so you know in our office we used to say, hey, you know, deep pockets, short arms. The, the deeper the pockets, the shorter the arm, and those are the people who actually have money at the end of the day, not mm-hmm. the freewheeling, free spending folks who have you know lived the lifestyle but haven't necessarily created the legacy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's well said. I like that. So maybe I'm shifting gears a little bit. Can you just? on a high level, just generally defined for us the term guardianship? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so a guardian is going to be a person who's going to have physical custody of the person's <laughs> medical decision-making and or their property. And so what, what typically happens if someone becomes incapacitated, either they develop dementia or Alzheimer's, or maybe they've got some medical issue, they, they're, you know, they can't make medical decisions on their own or financial decisions, and they haven't appointed a power of attorney or they haven't appointed someone to come in and make those decisions for them, the court will come in and will appoint someone, either a conservator or a guardian, to come and make those decisions for that individual. Now, these can be very contested, hotly mm-hmm. you know, adjudicated issues, depending on who's being appointed and how they're being appointed. And you know, the person who was being appointed may not necessarily have been the person that, that the ward would have wanted. Right. right, because they didn't specify. You know, you've got folks who are just kind of jockeying for that position. There's actually a, there's a great um, TV show on Netflix. It's a movie on Netflix called I Care a Lot, and they show this this horrible guardian business where they are going on. They're basically you know having old, old rich people declared incompetent so they can gain control of their money and put them in these expensive nursing homes mm-hmm. and just, just suck their cash out. So I think it's a little bit of an extreme, but but I do think that having someone appointed sort of short circuits that as a process and it allows you to identify you know. You know Who's going to make decisions for you? How are those decisions? How are your assets going to be invested? The other way to avoid that, you know, that process beyond a power of attorney is a revocable trust. You know, having mm-hmm. your assets in a trust and identifying a trustee <laughs> who can manage and administer those. Now, the thing about guardians and conservators is that their powers are going to be more limited than an appointed power of attorney mm-hmm. or an appointed trustee. trustee. They'll have to go back and report to the court. They'll have to provide, you know, income reports, and they'll have to. And, and so it adds an additional level of expense. That frankly isn't necessary, you know, if the person yeah. is doing a good job and you know being transparent right. with 
yeah. can be avoided. Yeah. Yeah. There's stuff to do. Okay. So let's kind of shift to how you view the business going forward. What would you say maybe is the biggest opportunity for the future of the practice? I think so. The, the greatest opportunity I think right now is the fact that the tax laws are changing mm. and they're changing pretty dramatically over the next couple of years. So under the Trump administration, they raised the federal sea tax exemptions uh, pretty significantly. And so yeah. right now we've got almost $13 million of, of assets that can transfer at the time of death. But the way they set that up, that uh, exemption is going to drop back down to the pre-Trump tax level uh, in 2026. And we, and we actually don't, don't know what that total number is going to be. We think mm-hmm. it's going to be like 6.2 and $6.5 million, but there's a CPI index and CPI has been all over the place. So, but the, the longest term of that is that for someone who has $13 million today, who died in, in 2023 versus dying in 2026, right? That person is going to have potentially an additional $6.5 million of assets that are exposed to federal state taxation. And, you know, even if you didn't have $13 million today, even if you had like maybe seven or eight million today, you would still be over that exemption amount and you'd still have that, you know, potential for, for tax. And so when it sunsets. When it sunsets. Now, now, what's interesting is the IRS has said, hey, if you go ahead and start planning now and you, you do planning and you give that those monies away or put them in a trust or lock them down some way, we're not going to claw back. We're not going to make you pay the tax on it because we don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, we know what the law says, but we're not going to penalize you for taking advantage of the, the law as it existed at the time. And so, you know, go do, go about your business, do what you want. Now, we've had calls from people who have been coming in saying, hey, you know, how do we how do we respond to this? Should we do it now? And we're encouraged, but look, this is as good as it's going to get. We don't think, you know, the Republicans are going to come back in to, to run the House or the Senate anytime soon or the presidency for the next, at least for, for the foreseeable two years. So, you know, this is a pretty good deal right now. And you should take out advantage of the opportunities that are there because I don't think it's going to get any better. It may get a lot worse. I mean, and if it does get better, we can always go back in and, and add more planning to it. But, you know, take advantage of that opportunity as it exists right now. Like this mm-hmm. is, try to think of it as the, those people who refinanced two years ago when mortgage interest rates were in the twos and the threes yeah. versus someone who's looking to refinance now at the sevens. And right. we talk to people all the time like, like, oh, man, I wish I had done this two years ago. I mean, my, my payments would have been half as much. And so they're feeling that pain very real. It's a very real pain right now. Mm-hmm where they raise these rates because they're saying, oh, well, the economy's not really it's heated up and people are, you know, the, the interest rates are too low, money's too cheap, now we're making more expensive. Yeah. And so when you think about that, the problem with that from an equity perspective is you have all these people who locked in their mortgages for 30 years at 2% versus people who are trying to refinance now. So you're going to wind up in that respect with folks who, who are locked in their house, they're not selling their homes, they're not refinancing, they're not moving to the next house because they've got such a good deal. If you think about that in the estate context, people are like, hey, you know, I've got this great opportunity now, I'm taking advantage of it. And then they're also going to not necessarily do future planning going down the road because it's going to get a lot worse. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think we're seeing some acceleration of that planning over the next, you know, five years and the next two years where people are trying to take advantage of those those high exemptions now. Thinking specifically of that, that refinance issue, you know, yeah. thinking where the rates are now versus where they were. Yeah. Well, and how many, if I, I, how many times have you heard, I'm sure you and and me also in my practice, if I, I wish I had done this sooner, I'd be, if I had like five bucks every time somebody told me that I had more than those people that blew through the 160 million. All right. So on the flip side of that, Jeff, what do you see as kind of your biggest challenge or obstacle for the business? It's something that you, you guys want to overcome. Yeah. So forward. Our biggest challenge right now is we actually get more work than we can, can handle. Mm. So we get a lot of work. And so we are kind of, we have a bit of a bottleneck where we, we get work that comes in 
faster than we're getting it out. And so we, we've been scaling. We've actually doubled the size of our office staff over the last couple of years, but we're still, you know, and so we're trying to become more efficient. We're trying to, we outsource some of our phone systems here. We've got an answering service that is doing some of our bookings and we're, you know, but we're also trying to rethink our processes. So we actually spend, what's interesting about our practice, we spend a lot of time with clients, not just doing the drafting, but actually doing their funding. Hmm. And so once they've set up a trust, you know, we, we will spend probably three or four times as many hours on the funding process as yeah. we spend on the drafting process. Yep. And so I think we could get better working with financial planners and financial advisors to engage with their clients because a lot of that is really saying, hey, you know, hey, Mr. Broker, like your client has another $5 million of, of the assets. We would like you to manage it. You know, could, could you please transfer that over? Can you put it in the name of the trust? And the brokers we talk to are super excited about this because it's, it's easy money for them to pick up. Yeah. They're able to consistently manage the assets Right for, for the mm-hmm. client's interest, the client is being better served by the fact that the assets are all in one location, yeah. and we've got a consistent plan of distribution. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time sort of you know trying to, to go ahead and marshal that, and, and I think we can probably do a better job on our end. We haven't that, that's not an area that, that we've been able to master yet, but we're still working on it. Like yeah. we're still we're still trying to trying to figure out you know how do we really get these folks to engage to implement. Now, mm-hmm. on the front end, when people are signing documents, we're doing powers of attorney, healthcare powers, living wills. Then we're also trying to say, hey, can we send these you know, healthcare powers out to your physician? Is there a specific hospital? And getting that information from clients as well, that's super helpful. When they come in to execute, you know, we will have deeds prepared. We're, we're recording those the same day. So we used to do that manually pre-COVID. We'd go to the courthouse and record that. That's all going to electronic recording. Yeah. So that has really you know, sped up our process. Um, so I, I think, you know, as people's expectations change in terms of in-person versus online, and, and as we're able to really build out that system, I think as far as the funding, I think we'll be in a much better place growing yeah. and scaling our practice and actually, you know, meaning exceeding our client needs. So in our office, one of the things we say is, you know, we think that every every client experience, every estate plan should be meaningful, should be memorable, should be measurable. And so, you know, we ask ourselves, you know, have we hit those those sort of watermarks on each of these things as we go through? And the area for, for measurability, like, you know, as far as, you know, percentage of assets, what percentage of assets did we get in the trust before the client mm-hmm. died? We would like that number to be 100%. Right? Yeah, of course. It's not always 100%, but, but the closer we get to 100%, like, the better. So, yeah. you know, in our mind, like, in an ideal world, the only thing that wouldn't be in the trust would be, like, causes of action that arose as a result of someone's death, like a wrongful mm-hmm. death claim, or maybe an income tax rate, but, you know, or, or, or something, some sort of like esoteric, you know, they, they hit the publisher's clearing out sweepstakes after they passed, and yeah. they got a, you know, billion dollars. Like, that would be great, because those are few and far between from, from a, a planning perspective, but, but really, we're going for 100% in terms of funding. Mm-hmm. That's really well, important. and that's the, that's, that is the key to the whole thing. Once it's created, it has to be funded, and otherwise it's pointless, yeah. as you know. So, yep. yeah, that's, a, that's super important to yeah. get to help them to implement yep. it and to get things changed over once the plan's created. Okay. So, the funny thing is, is we actually we have clients who come in and say, hey, I want to do a trust, but I don't want to fund it right now. Right. Like, what are you waiting for? And they're like, well, I'm waiting till I die. I'm like, okay, well, how would fun will you die? Well, it'll go through probate. I'm like, okay, but if it's going through probate, you're going to pay the probate fees cost expense. You're yeah. going to spend 12 to 18 months, right? And then you're going to pay the trustee fees cost. Like, so you've actually doubled your cost. You, you've mm-hmm. extended the amount of time. And so we'll do this. People, we, we politely decline those engagements. We said, you know what? Either yeah. do a will or do a trust. Having a trust is like being pregnant, right? It's binary. You're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be a little pregnant. My, 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 we've got four kids, and I tell my wife, she understands. <laughs> Honey, you can't be a little pregnant, right? So the assets are either in the trust or they're not. And if you're not going to fund it, don't do a trust. Like, like mm-hmm. you know, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah, it is. there's no point to it. 
Okay. So if people want to learn more about you, your, your firm or contact you, what's the best way for them to do that, Jeff? Um, so our website is JD cats. That's J's and Juliet. D's and Delta K's and Kilo A's and Alpha T's and Tango's D's and Zulu JD cats.com. Um, they can reach out uh, to us by phone at uh, 301-913-2948. Uh, we do planning throughout the United States. And so we're happy to talk to folks about their planning goals, needs, and objectives. Okay. Awesome. I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I want to thank everyone for listening and watching the Confident Retirement Podcast brought to you by LPF Advisors, where we are raising the financial confidence of everyday people to another level, one show at a time. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Take care. Be well. Jeff, thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Confident Retirement Podcast with Chris and Mark from LPF Advisors. For more information on them and retiring confidently, please visit lpfadvisors.com. If your ears are pleased and your mind is now at ease, do share the program with your friends and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.